The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. I've served as a pastor for a long time here in Toronto at uh, Morningside Christian, Morning Star Christian Fellowship, and more recently he served as the senior pastor at. Uh, Highland Church in Hamilton. And uh, in addition to his pastoral duties, John is the chair of the Adam House Board, which is a special ministry to refugees in Toronto. He is a member of the Canadian Advisory Council to Exodus Global Alliance, which is an international ministry that uh, meets the needs of the sexually broken. And he is also a founding member of the Gospel Coalition, which is uh, a ministry Uh, of leaders committed to uh, gospel-centered ministry. And uh, we're happy to have you with us tonight, John, and we look forward to hearing from you. Could I ask the ushers to come forward, and we'll take up our offering. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we have just been singing of thine immeasurable grace. Indeed, You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but you made us alive. You raised us up with Christ. You seated us with Christ at the right hand of God. And so we've come here this evening with thanksgiving in our hearts, and we offer you our tithes and offerings, and we ask that you would bless these gifts for the work of the gospel, for the work of the kingdom, and for the extension of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good evening, everyone. It is good to be with you tonight. As has already been said, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 3, and I will read that text in just a moment. Let me just say a few words of introduction before we actually get into the text. I think we all understand that the theme of Ephesians is the church. It is the central thing that Paul is writing about here. And uh, that will be part of the application that I make this evening. Uh, You and I in relation to the church, what does this particular passage say to you and I in a practical way? How do we live out what this is saying uh, today in our own lives? Uh, Paul, um, in this letter, uh, says more about the church perhaps than he does in any other uh, text. He really unfolds for us the great theology of what the Christian church is is all about. And he uses a number of metaphors. Uh, certainly, he uses the metaphor of the bride when we get into Ephesians 5. Uh, he uses the metaphor of the body, um, which is toward the end of uh, Ephesians 2, and also um, that of a, a building that God is making, a temple in which God lives by his spirit. And one of the themes that runs through the book is that God has taken the diverse peoples of the world and he has united them to one another. He has united them, first of all, to himself through faith in Christ. And then secondly, he has united them to one another. So this theme of unity comes all through the book. And so we get into chapter 4 and we have these expressions. There is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And Paul there is stressing the unity of the church. The thing that Paul is saying in all of this, is that the church of Jesus Christ 
is at the center of the eternal purposes of God. And that's what comes through in the text. Now, what I'm going to do tonight is relatively simple. I'm going to break this down into three things. Number one, I, I, I want to take us through some observation. I just want to look at things in the text, observe some things. Secondly, I want to give an explanation of the text. And then finally, I want to bring an application and tie it into where we are today and how we can apply this text. And I'll be doing that as a pastor. If I were an evangelist, I would probably apply the text in a different way. But I'm doing it tonight as a pastor who loves the church of Jesus Christ, loves God's people, and so that'll be the thrust of what I say. So Ephesians chapter 3, let's start at verse 1. For this reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit, to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of His power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, This grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. According to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Now, right at that point in verse 14, he uses the same words again as he does in verse 1. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. And we have this beautiful prayer that Paul prays for the church of Jesus. So let's, let's go to this observation aspect tonight. And I want you to notice, as I just said, in verse 14, we have the phrase, for this reason. Go back to verse 1, for this reason. Paul says it twice. I want you to notice, he, he's, this is the connection back to chapter 2. There's some truth that he's been talking about in chapter 2, and he says, now for this reason, and he's about to pray. He's engaged with this truth about the church of Jesus Christ. He's excited about what he's, what he's just written. He's excited about this truth, and he begins to pray, and as he begins to pray, he starts to talk about himself for a moment, and so we move into this parenthesis right to the end of verse 13, and then finally in verse 14, he kicks into the prayer, and he prays what he intended to pray right at the beginning in verse 1. So the connection then is back to chapter 2. Now, if you were here last week, I'm, I'm not sure how the, the, uh, the, uh, the preacher last week handled chapter 2, but chapter 2, from verse 11 to 22, the last 11 verses of chapter 2, 
are rich in truth about the church of Jesus Christ. And I think there are probably four words that we could say to just sum up chapter 2. The first word is alienation. Now Paul here is talking about Gentiles before they came to God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he says Gentiles were alienated, they were separated, they were excluded. We find that in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. They were cut off. They were alienated not just from God, but they were alienated from Israel. They were alienated from God's people. So the historical setting is Paul's day, shortly after Jesus, there is this great division within the world, Jew and Gentile at loggerheads with one another, no communication, no association, complete separation. There is a barrier between these two great groups of people. That's not hard for us to imagine. We can think of some of the divisions within the human race today. But in Paul's day, that was the dividing line. So there was alienation from God, alienation from the people of God. Second word to sum up chapter 2 is reconciliation. Because in verse 13, he says, but now, In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, that is you Gentiles, you have now been brought near through the blood of Christ. So through the death of Jesus, he has destroyed, that's the third word, destruction. He has destroyed this man-made barrier that was there between Gentile and Jew. The barriers have been obliterated by the death of Christ because Christ has died for the world, Jew and Gentile alike. And then the fourth word is creation or new creation because after he says in verse 15 of chapter 2, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. Thus making peace. And then in the final verses of chapter 2, He describes what the church is, what this new creation is. And uh, the words he uses here are amazing. Verse 19, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. You are fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In him, verse 21, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. So here he describes the church of Christ, and this is the family that God loves, and finally it's the temple that God lives in. Now that's the truth that Paul is meditating on. That's the truth that is gripping the Apostle Paul as he begins chapter 3. And as he thinks of that truth, he's about to pray, but in his opening line he mentions himself in terms of him praying, For this reason, he wants to say, I'm going to kneel now before God the Father. I'm going to pray for the church. But for this reason, I, Paul, and then he describes himself as a prisoner for the sake of you Gentiles. And at this point, then he goes off in a parenthesis. And it's an interesting parenthesis. Because Paul now begins to explain something about himself. So he moves from truth about the church to testimony. Testimony. He's talking now about his role in the eternal purpose of God, his role. Now, what I want you to notice, first of all, in terms of the testimony and the personal words that Paul shares with us, 
First of all, he tells us about his physical circumstances. Verse 1, he describes himself as a prisoner, but like Paul, he doesn't just say, I'm a prisoner of Nero. No, he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul uh, has been incarcerated as he writes this letter. He is there because of Christ Jesus. He considers himself a prisoner of Jesus. And if you go down to the last line of verse 13, he describes the fact that he is suffering as a prisoner. These are his physical circumstances. And the reason why he's incarcerated, the reason why he's suffering, is because of Gentiles who've come to faith in Jesus Christ. If you read Acts 21, Acts 22, you get the whole story. Basically, Paul was defending his right to preach the gospel to to Gentiles. The Jews reacted very negatively to everything he said, and at that point, they wanted him put away. And so, of course, Paul appeals to Caesar, and this leads to a whole chain of events in which Paul eventually goes to the city of Rome. So we have his physical condition or circumstances. But now he also describes his emotional condition. Now, he doesn't use that word, but if you read the text through, you can see that the Apostle Paul is incredibly excited. He's very excited as he begins to explain his role in the purposes of God. And then he says, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me. He goes into this parenthesis because he's so excited. So he postpones prayer for the church because he wants them to understand how excited he is about being involved in the purposes of God himself. I think there's a number of things that Paul was excited about as he he penned these words. The first was he was excited about the fact that the death sentence that awaited him or the acquittal that may have come was completely in the hands of the one whose hands had been crucified for him completely in the hands of the one who holds everything in his power and his control. So Paul knew that God loved him. Christ loved him. And Paul knew that Christ had a plan for his life. He's excited about that. But he's also excited about the gospel itself because he begins to unpack for us in these words what the gospel of Jesus Christ really means. He's excited about this stewardship that has been given to him three times in the passage. He says, God's grace was given to me. And he's not referring here to to the grace that saves us, as he does in Ephesians 2. He's talking rather of this grace gift of God to him, this stewardship entrusted to him by God's grace to make known the mystery of Christ. And then he's also excited about the church itself. And so in this testimony about his role, He gives us some additional information about the church. Now, we come to explanation. Explanation. Look at verse 2. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me. There's that line. Look at verse 7. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me. Also, verse 8. Although I am the I am less than the least of all God's people. This grace was given to me. Now, when he talks about this grace that was given to him by God, basically he tells us two things related to this grace. The first, we could use the word revelation. Look at verse 2 and 3. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me 
by revelation. Keyword, revelation. Something was revealed to Paul. And that something that was revealed to Paul, Paul describes it as a gift of God's grace to him. Now, then, down to verse 8. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and verse 9, to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God. So here Paul talks about commission. On the one hand, grace was given to him, so he received a revelation. On the other hand, because he has this revelation, he now has received grace in a commission. And that commission is to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain this mystery. So one is information was given to Paul, and because he has this information, now Paul is commissioned for proclamation. Now, notice, in verse 2 and 3, when he speaks of this revelation, linked with it is the word mystery. The word mystery is found four times in our text. Even though we're moving into the explanation portion, we're still doing a little bit of observation at this point in time. That is, verse 3, the mystery made known to me by revelation. Verse 4, my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 6, this mystery. Verse 9, this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God. Now when you and I use the the word mystery today. We think of mystery novels. We think of mystery religions. The occult has a lot of mysterious kind of secret esoteric things. We refer to the great mystery religions of the past. But when we use this word, it, it, the word means dark. It's something that it's, it's obscure to us. I think mystery is trying to figure out a Rubik's Cube, trying to make it work. It's a mystery to me. I don't know how people can do it. It's something that's obscure. I can't figure it out. It doesn't make sense. I don't know how it works. That's how we use the word mystery. So mysterious is something that is inexplicable. It's something that is incomprehensible. Now you and I know as believers there are things to our faith that are mysterious in nature. The Trinity. <laughs> inexplicable. In some ways, incomprehensible. That God is Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. And yet there are not three gods. There is one God. The Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. They are distinct. They are separate. And yet they are one. It's something that's inexplicable and incomprehensible. In spite of all of the illustrations that we come up with to try to make this mystery clear. When the New Testament speaks of mystery, it's certainly referring to a, a secret, but it's referring to a secret that is now out in the open. Something that was hidden, but it's now out in the open. It's something that has now been made plain. It is truth that was previously unknown that is now disclosed. And it is disclosed by Paul 
according to Paul, by revelation. So what is this mystery that he speaks of? Well, look at verse 4. In verse 3, he says, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. In verse 4, he begins to unpack it, and he, and he's, he's, he starts to help us understand. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So we know that this mystery has something to do with Jesus. It is the mystery of Christ. So immediately we might think, well, what Paul is referring to is exactly what he talks about in Timothy, where he says, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh. Is this the mystery of Christ, this, this, this union of humanity and deity in one, that he is fully God and fully man? That's exactly how Paul describes this. It's a mystery that, that Jesus Christ is the God-man. That's not what Paul's talking about. Certainly that's a part of it. And Jesus is the source and the substance of this mystery that he's talking about here. But it's it's deeper than that, and he doesn't tell us in verse 4 and 5. In verse 5, he goes on to say that this thing was hidden in the past, generations of the past. They they didn't understand it. It hadn't been revealed to them. But now, now it has been revealed to God's holy apostles and prophets. And so it is not until verse 6 that he begins to unpack what the mystery of Christ is. Look at verse 6. This mystery is that through the gospel, that is the good news about Jesus, the proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord, he died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is both Messiah and Master. Through the gospel... The Gentiles, and I'm assuming that's most of us here tonight, are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. That's the mystery. The mystery is called the mystery of Christ, but the mystery of Christ is all about the church, that Gentiles have been incorporated into a body, into a nation. They are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. There's three phrases that Paul uses in verse 6. We are heirs together. Another way of saying that is fellow heirs. We are members together, that is, fellow members. We are sharers together, that is, fellow partakers. Heirs, we understand the word heir. An heir is someone who receives an inheritance. We are heirs of God and heirs of Christ. The Bible makes that very, very clear. But the point that Paul is making here is this. Get this. This is the mystery. That Jews who believe in Jesus... And Gentiles who believe in Jesus are heirs together. That is, if you are a Gentile and not a Jew, you share equal benefits with a Jew who believes in Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. Now then he goes on and he elaborates. He, 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 isn't, he isn't just using words here to drive home one point. 
he's explaining himself even more because he wants us to see the unity that we have in the body of Jesus. He now says we are members, verse 6, of one body. Members together of one body. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary in Ephesians 3, his sermons, actually, in Ephesians 3, uses a great illustration here to help us understand the difference between an heir and a, mem- a member. And the illustration he gives is of, a, is of a wealthy man in the past. A wealthy man who has a son. His son is an heir. But the wealthy man also has a servant. Now that servant is not a member of his family. But the wealthy man decides that he will divide his inheritance between both his servant and his son. So the servant is an heir. But you can be an heir and not be a son. You can be an heir and not be a member of the family. Paul says here, you aren't just an heir. You are a member with Jewish believers of one body. You are family too. There is no distinction then, according to Galatians 3. Jew and Gentile are all one in Christ Jesus. And then he adds the third phrase, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. There is also equal privilege. Now, I'm going I'm to do something tonight that I, I debated on, on my way here that I, and I thought maybe I shouldn't. But I'm just going to go down a rabbit trail for about, can you let me go down a rabbit trail for about a minute? Okay, the bad thing about going down a theological rabbit trail is there are theological cans of worms on the rabbit trail, and I'm going to open a can tonight, and some of you may not appreciate what I'm going to say. But all around us in our churches today, there is this thinking that Paul makes a great distinction between Israel and the church. It's like they are two separate bodies. But when you read Ephesians 3, how can you arrive at that conclusion? Jew and Gentile are heirs together, members together, sharers together. Paul makes no distinction here. And so this strict distinction between Israel and the church is incomprehensible in terms of what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 3. The church is not God's second plan. It's not plan B. God doesn't have a plan B. We are linked together in one body. And so in 1 Peter, Paul says we are one holy nation, Jew and Gentile alike. Now here's the mystery. Here's the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ is this complete, not half-hearted, not halfway, complete union in Jesus Christ, of Jew and Gentile with each other. A complete union. Through our union with Jesus Christ, there is a complete union of Jew and Gentile, and that is the Christian church. Now, some would say, well, Paul's saying that this is new. Paul says here in in chapter five, or chapter, or chapter three, verse five, that this wasn't known in the past, but now it's made known, and, and we, we get really mixed up with what he says here. Because didn't the Old Testament say that this is what it would be like? And yet Paul says in verse five that no, it, it wasn't made known to men in other 
generations, that is in the Old Testament era, as it has been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets in the New Testament era. So is this really a new revelation? And it's true, the Old Testament has so much to say about the Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God, about the Gentiles coming to Jerusalem, the Gentiles coming and bowing down and and worshiping God. This was was the hope of Israel. This was the hope of King David. It, It was what Solomon prayed when the temple was built, that the temple would become a place where the Gentiles would also come and worship God. Psalm 2 is a a prayer in which we pray that the Messiah will receive the inheritance of all the nations. It goes all the way back to the blessing of Abraham, that through Abraham all nations of the world would be blessed. And Isaiah says that that Israel would be a light of revelation for the the Gentile peoples. So yes, the, the Old Testament foresaw this. It foresaw Gentiles coming and believing in Messiah and coming and worshiping the one true and living God. The Old Testament saw all that. But what Paul is saying here in verse 5 is yes, the Old Testament predicted this. The Old Testament foresaw it. But the Old Testament never revealed how radical this plan was. A complete union of Jew and Gentile into one body. So if we could pretend that we're Jews right now, we might say, well, oh yes, the Gentiles will come and believe, but they won't be part of us. Oh yes, the the Gentiles will believe in the Messiah, and so we'll have an alliance with them. Yes, the Gentiles will believe in Jesus, the Messiah, but that means we'll, we'll, we'll have a good agreement with them and good relations with them. Yes, God accepts you Gentiles, but you're not Israel. God accepts you, but you're not really a part of us. You're still separate. You're still excluded from us. And Paul is saying no. That is not the truth. Go back to chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two, what? One. He has made the two one. Making peace. He has broken down this barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He has destroyed the barrier. He has made the two one. The mystery of Christ is this. That Jew and Gentile are in complete union with one another. The church is a new organism. It is an organism that has no distinctions whatsoever. Now let's come to the proclamation part. Because Paul says, revelation was given to me by God's grace. That revelation is the mystery of Christ, Jew and Gentile in complete union with one another. Forming a new body, a new humanity, a new society, a new community. Different than anything else ever before. Then he says, I was also given a commission, that is to proclaim. And if you look at verse 6, you'll see the mystery is through the gospel. So this mystery of Christ is linked with the gospel of Christ. 
Verse 8, he tells us what it is. It is to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. There's There's an expression we could spend the whole evening on. But basically, the unsearchable riches of Christ is everything that he talks about in Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3. They're infinite, the riches of Jesus. Verse 9, it is also to make plain the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God. So Paul says that's the commission. That's the unique role that was given to me as an apostle. I received it by revelation, and I'm making it known to people too. Now, here's where I want us to park tonight. I want us to park on verse 10 and 11. Verse 10 and 11, because I believe that in verse 10 and 11, we come to the heart. We come to the heart of what Paul is saying here. In some ways, it's the theological heart of what he's saying here. Verse 10 and 11. His intent, that is God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now what does that mean? His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known, put on display, showcased. To the heavenly authorities, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And then he adds, according to his eternal purpose. Now we're into some heavy stuff here. What's Paul mean by this? Think about it in this way. Think about it for Paul. When Paul preached the unsearchable riches of Christ, when Paul made plain this mystery, what happened? What happened? Well, we have the record in the book of Acts. He's preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ throughout the Roman world. He's making plain the knowledge of this mystery. And everywhere he goes as he proclaims the unsearchable riches of Christ, things start to happen. People believe when they hear. They put their faith and trust in Christ. They are saved. The church begins to grow in different locations all throughout the Roman world. Jews and Gentiles are being added to the church left, right, and center. We have this amazing statement in Acts 19, verse 10, where it says, and all the Jews and all the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's a summary of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. All the Jews and all the Greeks who lived in the whole province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. In three years of ministry in that city, the whole province heard the word of the Lord. So the church begins to grow. And a new humanity is created. This community comes into being. Now, we don't just have to put ourselves back in the days of Paul. We can put ourselves in our own shoes today. The gospel is being preached here in this church. In other churches throughout our, throughout our city. Christians are engaging in people with people every day in their workplaces, in schools, neighborhoods. We're sharing Christ wherever we go. What is the result? We're making known 
the unsearchable riches of Christ. And someone here and someone there and someone here and someone there, they come to faith in Christ. And they get incorporated into the church. And lo and behold, they are people from every nation under heaven. Blacks and whites and Asians and Africans, Europeans, South Amer- 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 Americans, people from the West Indies and the East Indies, they are coming into the church. They are, they're getting saved. A new humanity is being developed. A new community. It's multiracial. It's multiethnic. It's multinational. It's multicultural. It's the church of Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 10, his intent, God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. The word manifold there means multicolored. God's wisdom is being displayed today in the world through the church. God's wisdom is being showcased through God's people. When people are saved and they are reconciled to God and they are reconciled to one another in spite of all these barriers that exist within the human race, when all these barriers are broken down, what do we see? We see the multicolored wisdom of God. And so in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, Paul talks about God's power in terms of salvation. In Ephesians 2, he talks of God's grace being displayed in salvation. And here he speaks of God's wisdom being displayed through those who are saved. God's power is displayed. God's grace is displayed. God's wisdom is now showcased to the entire universe. Multicolored, many-colored, rainbow is the idea. Now, isn't everything that God does like that? Everything that God does is multicolored. Last week, my cousin was visiting us from Edmonton, and we have in Hamilton, you may have been there, the Royal Botanical Gardens. Anybody been there before? Some of you have. Amazing. I've never been there. I've lived in Hamilton now for three and a half years, never gone there, but my cousin loves flowers. So my duty last Friday was to take her to the Royal Botanical Gardens in that heat and walk around those gardens and look at flowers. And I'm not really into flowers, but I was, I was pretty taken back. I was very taken back by what I saw. Flowers of, I'd never seen before. Different textures, different colors, different places where they grow in the world in different climates. Thousands and thousands and thousands of colors. The manifold wisdom of God in creation. Everything that God does is multicolored. Now, here he is talking about salvation. And just as God's work in creation is so diverse and manifold in the same way His work in salvation is the same. Listen, there is no community in the world like the Christian church. There is nothing like the church. The church is absolutely unique. It is God's phenomena. To use a Canadian expression, the church is a distinct society. Very distinct. The church reflects The wisdom of God. Now notice verse 11. Verse 11 uses two words, eternal purpose. Verse 10 says, his intent was that now, through the church. Right now in the present, in the church. We have the eternal purpose of God 
to bring the church into being, to redeem for himself a people out of all the nations of the world, making them one. And his intent was that now, through this church, through the historical outworking of the eternal purposes of God, God's manifold wisdom would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So let's just stop for a moment and think about history and current events. Because there is the eternal purpose of God, what God foreordained would happen, His decrees in eternity past, but it's all being worked out in the history of our world today. I like what John Stott says about this verse. By the way, I don't know if you heard this, but John Stott went to be with the Lord today. Dr. John Stott, yes, he's now with the Lord. Passed away within the last 24 to 48 hours. But John Stott in his commentary on Ephesians, describes verse 10 as a great drama. A great drama. He says, history is the theater in which this drama takes place. The world is the stage on which it happens. Believers, you and I, are the actors in this drama. And God, well, God has written the play God directs the play. God produces the play. So act by act, scene by scene, what happens? History unfolds. History unfolds. Who's the audience? Who's watching the drama? Verse 10, what does it say? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms... In the spirit world, they are watching what is taking place. The angels of God are watching. And they are absolutely fascinated, Paul says, by what they see. Now, when we think of angels in terms of the work of salvation, we know that the angels came and appeared to the shepherds, all tied in with the Christmas story. Today, the angel said, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. So the angels knew that Jesus Christ was the Savior of the world. But did the angels understand everything about the plan, the eternal plan, and purpose of God? I don't think so. Because First Peter tells us that angels long to look into these things. When the, when the prophets were writing the Old Testament writings with all of the prophecies about salvation that would come through the Messiah... They weren't sure exactly about what time they were writing about. They didn't have all the details in their mind. They knew they were writing about something significant, but they didn't understand it or comprehend it all. And even the angels longed to look into these things. So while they had knowledge that Christ was the Savior of the world, they were ignorant of the complete eternal purpose and plan of God. But now they are the audience. And they are watching it happen, unfold every day as the unsearchable riches of Christ are made known throughout the world and people are coming to Christ daily. Do you know how many people come to Christ every day on this planet? 42,000 is the estimation. 42,000 people a day coming to faith in Christ. All around the world. Isn't that amazing? 42,000. They're standing there watching 42,000 people coming into the church Every day, and they are wowed by what they see. They are completely blown away by what they see. 
And Jesus tells us in Luke that when the angels see one sinner repent, what do the angels do? They rejoice. They rejoice. As they see this church coming into being, this multiracial, multiethnic, multinational body of believers, they are completely fascinated by everything that they see. And what do they learn in their observations? Paul tells us, verse 10, they see the multicolored wisdom of God. And they acknowledge how wise God is. And they see the unfolding of the eternal purposes of God. Now, there's so much more in the passage. But I stop here, and I, not my message, so put your seatbelts seat on. I got another 20 minutes yet. Um, now we move to application. Okay? How does this influence us right now? Believers in Jesus Christ living in this city in the year 2000. And 11. How, do we, how do we take this theological truth about the church and how does it influence us right now today? Three things I want to say to you tonight. There's more that I could say, but three only. Number one, this should influence our understanding of history and current events. You and I should have a completely different look on history than the world does. Paul in verse 9 speaks of the administration, that is the outworking of the mystery. It is realized in Jesus Christ. There was a historical event 2,000 years ago which was a watershed in the history of the world. It is the dividing line in history. Jesus Christ the eternal Son of God was crucified on a cross. He rose again from the dead. Forty days later, He ascended into heaven and He poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit and created the church. That is history. Christ died for our sins in history. It is the historical work of Christ for our salvation. Now, the proclamation of that historical event is carried on in our world every day. Now what is the eternal purpose of God that is now being worked out in the present, in history? The answer is, it is the church of Jesus Christ. We are central to the eternal purpose of God. Do you understand that? Do you understand that the church of Jesus Christ is the center of God's unfolding of history. I had a wonderful history teacher at Woburn Collegiate in Scarborough when I was growing up. And um, his name was Mr. Story. And I remember he made history come alive. As a matter of fact, I fell in love with history because of Mr. Story. But I can distinctly remember Mr. Story saying in our class, all history is about is things that have happened. That's all it's about. History is just about things that have happened. And you need to know what happened. Mr. Story was wrong. History is not just about what happened. History is moving towards a goal. History is not just some random succession of events that have no purpose or no meaning. No, the very center of history itself is the gathering together of the church of Jesus Christ. It is the center of God's plan. Look at Ephesians 1, verse 22. Go back to chapter 1, verse 22. Great verse. 
Amazing verse. Paul writes, it's, it's the second last verse of chapter 1. And God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed Him, Jesus, to be head over what? Over everything. Jesus is head over everything. For what? For the church. For the church. Jesus is head over everything. Head over everything for the sake, for the benefit of the church. That is why when John has his vision of the throne and someone seated on that throne, this cry goes out from one of the elders. Who can break the scroll? The one sitting in the center of God's throne has a scroll in his hand. It is sealed with seven seals. Who can break the scroll? Who is worthy to break the scroll? In other words, who is powerful enough and excellent enough that he can break the seals of that scroll and unfold history the way God has preordained it to happen. And John says they searched throughout the universe and no one was found who was worthy. And then one steps forward and says, no, there is someone who's worthy. He's the Lamb who's at the center of the throne. He is worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals. He will bring history to its foreordained conclusion. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Verse 22 of chapter 1 is telling us that Jesus is control, in control of everything and He is causing history to work out the way it is happening in our world because it is all for the sake of the church. In other words, God is using what we would refer to as historical events, but it's all merging together to bring the church into being. Let me give you several examples of this. First of all, an example from God's Word. We come to Luke chapter 2, verse 1. You know the story. It's the Christmas story. In those days, Luke writes, a decree went out from who? Caesar Augustus. That the whole world, a census would be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, was Caesar Augustus an important man in the history of the world? Darn right. Sure was. He's mentioned in the Christmas story but he's mentioned just in passing. What is the significance of this great Roman emperor? In Luke's mind? In the mind of God? He just brought about a census. And what did the census do? The census ensured that Joseph and Mary would go to Bethlehem. Why? So that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of the prophet Micah, that out of Bethlehem would come one who would be ruler over all of Israel. Listen, Caesar Augustus, in history, is insignificant except for one thing. He issued a decree which brought the king of kings into this world in the the exact spot where God said it would happen. He is head over everything for the sake of the church. Let's go back 500 years. The Protestant Reformation breaks out over Europe. Europe is transformed. The Western world as we know it has been completely transformed by that historical event 500 years ago. But is it just purely coincidental that at the time of the Reformation, the printing press was invented? 
Do you know what would have happened to the Reformation if the printing press had not been invented? The Reformation would probably have been squashed, snuffed out by church authorities who didn't want the truth being preached. But because the printing press was invented, the first thing that was produced on the printing press was Luther's Bible in German. And not only him, but all of the other reformers were able to use the printing press. There was an explosion of literature throughout Europe, and people began to read, and they were hungry to know the truth. God used a historical event of the invention of the printing press to cause his gospel to spread throughout Europe. And that is the Protestant Reformation. I want to I park here for a moment. What do we make of World War II? I mean, there have been some horrific wars since World War II, but in terms of scale, in terms of the largeness of war, nothing yet has equaled the Second World War. What was the, what was the purpose of God in the Second World War? Isn't God in control of everything that happens in the world? Why would God allow that to happen? Now, I cannot, I cannot give you a detailed answer. I don't know. But I do know this, and maybe you're not aware of this. Do you realize that the, at the end of the Second World War, there was a great resurgence of missionary activity all over the world, never seen before in history? The greatest time of Christian missions happened from 1946 right up till today. The gospel has gone out in more parts of the world in that period of time than in any other period of time. In the mission that I was associated with, Send International, that mission was started by American GIs who were Christians who were fighting the Japanese in the Pacific. They went to Guam, they went to the Philippines, they went to Iwo Jima, they were in all of those islands, and they fought the Japanese there. And when they were there, they were introduced to the world like they'd never seen it before. They fell in love with the peoples of the world there. And many of them returned to the Philippines and to Japan to take the gospel of Jesus Christ. God uses the historical events of this world to do amazing things. I'm going to give you a couple more illustrations of this because I love this theme. In 1972, in the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos, the president, declared martial law. All civil liberties ceased to exist he declared martial law. It went into effect at 12 o'clock midnight, September 21st. By 6 o'clock in the morning, the Philippine army had arrested about 95% of the people they had on their list. There was a growing communist insurgency at that time. The New People's Army, which was the military wing of the Communist Party, was spreading throughout the nation. There was real fear, political instability. When Marcos declared martial law, everything began to change. And it changed in a very, it changed in a very, very rapid way. Now, I was there when Marcos was ousted in the People Power Revolt in 1987. But from 1972 to 1987, in spite of some of the bad things of Marcos' rule, when Marcos declared martial law, it completely changed the social climate of the nation. For years, missionaries had labored and seen very few Filipinos come to faith in Christ. But with the imposition of martial law, it was like a spiritual climate opened up like no one could believe. And from that day in 72 until today, the Philippines has been in a great spiritual awake awakening. It continues 
to this day, continues to this day. It's amazing how many people have come to faith in Christ. Now, in 1968, in Rome, the Roman Catholic Church met for Vatican II. Here's a historical event. And they deliberated on a whole pile of theological issues. But one of the decisions made at Vatican II was that the Bible should now be opened up to Roman Catholics to read for themselves. A historic decision made by the Roman Catholic Church. A few years after Vatican II, the Vatican chose 19 parishes, Roman Catholic parishes around the world, to become centers of learning for Bible study. Guinea pig projects in the Catholic Church to encourage Catholics to read the Bible for themselves. In Camuning, a subdivision of Quezon City in Metro Manila, a Filipino Catholic priest, parish priest, receives a letter from the Vatican informing him that his parish has been chosen as a, as a guinea pig pro, pro, project to promote Bible study within the parish. The priest doesn't know what to do. He's never studied the Bible before. He hardly knows what the Bible says. But there's an American missionary named Chuck Huff Stettler from Rome, Georgia, with a long southern accent, who can speak Filipino, was a GI in 1945 at Leyte Gulf, went back after the liberation to preach the gospel. And Chuck is going all around the community, introducing himself to people, encouraging people to study the Bible. He's met the priest, he's talked to the priest, the priest comes to Chuck and he says, Chuck, I don't know much about the Bible. Could you come into our church and start Bible studies in our parish? And Chuck Hufstetter begins Bible studies in a Roman Catholic parish. And within two years, hundreds, hundreds of Filipinos have come to faith in Jesus Christ right within a Catholic parish. And the result is, over a period of time, they come out and they form a church called the Kamuning Bible Christian Church. And that church has gone on to start over 35 churches since that day. A historical decision made by ecclesiastical authorities. And the end result is, is the church grows. There is the manifold wisdom of God. Hallelujah. I try to make sense out of our world today. This famine in Somalia, what, it, what, is, what is God doing? Somehow it relates to the eternal purpose of God. A new nation has come into being. Southern Sudan. How does all that fit in with the eternal purposes of God? I don't know. But I know through those historic decisions, God is doing something in our world. We are trying to make sense of what happened in Oslo. And Norwegians are perplexed. Would God use this horrific event to somehow turn the hearts of Norwegians the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I are living in a very unique time in the history of our world. Very unique. We are seeing, I believe, the end of the American influence. And we're seeing India and China arising as new world powers. What does all of this mean in the eternal purpose of God? I don't know. But it's going to be exciting to see it all unfold. And the angels are watching. 
Now my time is gone. I have a hundred more things to say. Let me just say two. Not only should this influence the way we view his, his, history, but our understanding of the church should also, what we, this should also influence our understanding of the nature of the church. The nature of the church. Now, historically, as Paul writes Ephesians 3, he's talking about this divide between Gentile and Jew. But listen, listen we have divides in our own world today. There are the accepted ones. They are, there are those who are not accepted. There is the majority, there are the minorities, there is the in-group and the disenfranchised. I've just recently read a book by Andrew Himes. He is the grandson of a famous American evangelist by the name of John R. Rice. I don't know if any of you have ever heard that name before. John R. Rice had a fallout with Billy Graham many years back. I was first influenced by John R. Rice's incredible book on prayer had a profound impact on my life. Andrew Himes walked away from God. He saw in the southern United States, and even in his grandfather's own church, a discrimination against blacks that he could not reconcile with the teaching of the Word of God. And in this fundamentalist Baptist church in the southern United States, he saw all of this discrimination taking place, and he walked away from Jesus. He's now come back. And he's written a book on what fundamentalism in the South was like and how he has come to faith in Jesus Christ. And as I read that book, I had to wince at certain times because there were men who who I have heard of before, I have heard their sermons preached, men who I thought were great men of God, but there is no doubt that racism tinted their souls. Listen. If this passage teaches us anything, it's about the nature of the church, that the church is an international community. No one should be disenfranchised in the house of God. We must not only welcome the world, we must embrace the world. And what an opportunity you as Christians have in the city of Toronto, in the most cosmopolitan, multicultural city in the world, to produce churches that mirror what the kingdom of God really looks like, what heaven is going to look like. And finally, this text, these truths, should influence our understanding of our own personal place in the church. And I close with this. Our own personal place within the church. Do you realize what you belong to? You know you belong to the Lord Jesus but you also belong to the Christian church. Do you realize how significant that is? You and I are part of the eternal purposes of God. Wow. And yet so many of us, we we hold the church at arm's length. Paul says some interesting things in this text. Verse 13, he talks about his suffering. He's suffering for the church. And in verse 14, what does he do? He breaks out into prayer. And he prays for the church. Paul was consumed with the church because he understood the church was the mystery of Christ. Paul understood that the church was at the center of the plan of God, and so it was at the center of his life. 
And so Paul could say, yes, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ suffered for the church. And in Colossians 1, he says, I am filling up in my body that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. He was willing to suffer for the church and to give his life in service that the church of Jesus Christ might become everything that God intends it to be. You have a place in the church of Christ too. We cannot be like the Apostle Paul. We won't receive this revelation that Paul received. That was a unique calling that Paul had. But we can be like Paul in terms of our heart and our attitude to the church of Jesus Christ. Now our time is gone and I think we were going to have a a closing song. But what I would like to do is I'd like to just pray right now. And uh, I'm going to pray Ephesians chapter 3 for us. And then, uh, can we take questions, David? Is there any time? Then we'll just open it up for any questions that you might have. Let's just pray. Father, I come to you tonight. The Father from whom your whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And it is my prayer tonight that out of your glorious riches... Everyone in this room and in the churches we represent will be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in all of our hearts through faith. And I pray, Lord, that we would be rooted and grounded and established in love and therefore have the power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that all of us may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, thank you for allowing me to speak to you tonight. I apologize I took so long. I I, I tend to get excited about some of these things. I love God's Word. I love to expound it. And I think some of the truths that I've been talking about tonight, especially my experience as a missionary overseas and seeing how God's eternal purpose has been working out in that nation is something that thrills my heart and soul. So if you have any questions at all, we'll just take just a couple of minutes and I'll try my best to answer them and then we'll we'll be dismissed. Anyone? The question is, um, we belong to Christ and we belong to the church. So the question, I, I hope I get your question right. Do you th- he was asking, do you think that um, we have overemphasized, in a sense, the individualistic personal aspects of salvation and haven't stressed the fact that salvation is also about the kingdom of God at large? There's a corporate dimension. Is that basically what you said? And, and, and my answer is yes. I think we, you know, we, we're, we're so much about individuals coming to faith in Christ, and so we should be, even more so. But we do need to emphasize that salvation means incorporation into a body. Salvation means a, being a part of the church. I, I believe the, state, the statement, there is no salvation outside of the church, I believe that's true. You have to be in the church in order to be saved. By that, I'm not saying coming into a church building in order to be saved, but when you're saved, you're incorporated into the church. 
So I think, I think we need to have a corporate dimension. And, um, and I think the outworkings of that are myriad. There are tons of Christians attending our, church, our churches who've never become members of a local church. And if, if you're not a member of a local church, you are holding the church at arm's length because you, you are not bringing yourself under the discipline of that local church and submitting to the elders' authority within that church. And I think that's all a part of being a disciple of uh, Jesus. Yes. Okay, the, the question is, how would I encourage a young person who's believed but doesn't get the church, the church part? Well, I don't think it's just young, young people. I think there's older people too. I think it's, we just have to keep teaching God's word. And that when you are called into fellowship with Christ, you're also called into fellowship with the local church. I think one of the things we, we don't stress baptism the way we should. We have separated bap- baptism from the saving event. So many people come to faith in Christ and they're baptized a year, two years, three years later. And I think baptism is a part of incorporation into the church. Acts 2 says those, the 3,000 were accepted the word, they were baptized, and they were added to the church. And so I think we have, we have failed to stress the importance of this. The, the baptism event and the saving event are two separate things. I understand that. But in the Bible, they are linked And that's why everyone in the Bible is baptized relatively soon. I think Paul was the only one who waited. He he was baptized three days later. But everyone else, yeah, everyone else was baptized immediately because baptism was a part of that that coming into the fellowship of the church. And, And so we should never separate by long times the the sign from the reality. They need to be linked. And I think because over time they have become separate from each other, we've lost the significance of what the church, the church is. So I think we've got to get back and teach what baptism really is. It's just a matter of teaching the Word. It's a part of discipling people. Go into all the nations, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. So if a young person doesn't get it or an older person doesn't, doesn't get it, get them in the Word. You know, get them reading the Word. Teach the Word. The Word is what sets people free. One more, and then we're, then we're done. I think everybody wants to go. Thank you very much for this time tonight. God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.